Ahoy, mateys. This be the Fan Levitard Show, and I'm your Captain Ty. Like, subscribe, rate, review, and follow the show on Twitter at Levitard underscore fan. Okay, I need to stop. My limited fake pirate is not very strong. Unlike today's episode, which is incredibly strong, I had the honor of chatting with an actual pirate historian, and I can say without a doubt, this is the most educational episode of the podcast to date. So with that, let's get into the interview. This is The Fan Levitard Show. This very special 10th episode of the Fan Levitard Show, it felt fitting to take a deeper dive into the pirate radio phase of the Dan Levitard Show. And what better way to do that than to talk to someone who knows a thing or two about piracy? That's why I am pleased to welcome in Dr. Rebecca Simon. She is a pirate historian whose new book, Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever, is available for purchase on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere books are sold. You can also follow her on Twitter at Becca Lex, that's B-E-C-K-A-L-E-X. Dr. Simon, welcome in today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are really excited to have an actual bona fide expert on pirates here because we are all kind of learning a little bit more about pirates now as our favorite podcast um, is really leaning in and embracing this pirate theme of theirs as they celebrate their newfound independence. And so I'm really happy that we can have you on to learn a little bit about pirates. And I guess my first question to you is, how does one become a pirate historian and what made you fascinated about pirates to begin with? So in order to become, so a lot of people would say in order to become a historian, you know, you've got to go get your bachelor's degree in history, your master's degree in history, and then your PhD in history. That's a bit up for debate. I think um, you can become a historian as long as you have the passion and the willingness to do all these real, no pun intended, deep dives into a lot of major historical thinking. Uh, But what I did is I did go all the way for a master's and a PhD. Uh, the way I got interested in pirates actually didn't really happen until I was in grad school when I was taking a class about the history of the British Atlantic world, which is kind of like the 1600s, 1700s, looking at the Caribbean and North America and England, because I love all those subjects combined into one. And we read a book about piracy and I found it really fascinating because this book kept saying that pirates were essentially seen as terrorists. And so the British were using terrorism to get rid of pirates. And it kind of sort of sparked an interest. I wondered, how did we go from that to Jack Sparrow? Because <laughs> um, I really wanted to kind of go on and kind of continue researching it. And so that became the subject of my master's thesis. And I argued it was the publication of the book Treasure Island that really changed perceptions of piracy and turned them into these sort of fun pop culture figures. And then for my doctorate, when I I went to King's College London and did my doctorate there, and I was researching pirates, just reading a book about Captain Kidd, um, the subject of my book that you mentioned. And I saw when he was being executed, he was taken to a different place of execution than normal. He was taken to a place called Execution Dock, which is in an East London neighborhood called Wapping, when most people were taken to be executed at a place called Tyburn in West London. And I thought that was interesting and I wanted to know why. So I was like, I'll look up an article or a book to see why pirates take into a different place. And there was nothing written. So that became the subject of my PhD. I decided I wanted to research, you know, 
about public executions of pirates and how they grew and what they came to symbolize. And, you know, from there, the rest is history, really. <laughs> Pun intended there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to get a little self-indulgent here and share a little bit about myself. Um, I currently live in Williamsburg, Virginia, right near the Jamestown settlement. And so I selfishly am curious if you can give me any uh, fun pirate facts that may... Um, involve like colonial America or the region that I call home now? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of an interesting difference between colonial Americans in the New England region and then the mid-Atlantic and the Southern region. In New England, people generally hated pirates because they really relied on their maritime industry, logging, fishing, that sort of thing. And pirates were, you know, threat number one. So they hated pirates up in New England for the most part. But then as you start going south, people actually kind of begin having better relationships with pirates because a lot of pirates begin bringing in goods that they might not be able to get otherwise because of a lot of really strict trading restrictions. So the middle colonies and the southern colonies, in fact, were so notorious for working with pirates that places like Rhode Island became known as receptacles of pirates. Also to know that the really infamous pirate Blackbeard uh, retired for a hot minute in North Carolina, Bath, North Carolina. And then after about six months, he decided to go back to sea and he ended up being beheaded off the coast of Virginia. Wow. So there you go. Some Virginia connection right there. Awesome. I love that. You talked about Blackbeard and I guess he he is probably, is it, it's a safe to say he's the most popular of all pirates? He's probably the most well-known, I would say. He's very, you know, very visually recognizable, and that alone made him really infamous, and that continues today, definitely. So I guess I'm curious then, you know, I guess he is kind of the representation that we as a society have of pirates, the the big, long, bushy beard, swashbuckler type deal. But how accurate is that perception of pirates? Because that's pretty much all we see in movies, games, TV, stuff like that. Well, Blackbeard was kind of an anomaly. In fact, he was known for being so outlandish looking because no other pirate looked like him. And he knew that and he capitalized on it. So the 1700s was a time period where polite society reigned supreme. You wanted to appear civilized and literally polite, as they say. Physically, to exude this politeness, men would be clean shaven with short hair or hair neatly tied back. So Blackbeard does everything the opposite. He's got very long black hair that he grows out very long, a very long bushy beard. It hides most of his face. So that goes against absolutely everything. He also lights his beard with candles and sparklers when he goes into battle to make himself look like he's coming out of hell. So he frightened people. He terrified people. But because he was so notorious and he was so unique in this, when someone kind of creates a look that becomes so famous, you start kind of really associating with that. And so this kind of would carry on until um, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island. And he described the pirates in a lot of detail. Long John Silver having the peg leg and having an eye patch and the parrot on the shoulder and everything like that. So he took a lot of that inspiration from pirates like Blackbeard. But interestingly enough, also from a tour of the United States where he met Civil War veterans, many of whom had been maimed and injured in that way. And he took that and put it into his book, which is quite accurate because people would always get injured at sea. So this is kind of where that look began to continue on until what we think of today in terms of 
Jack Sparrow, whose look, in a way, could be quite reminiscent of Blackbeard's with his long hair. He's got a little bit of a beard, but he decorates it. So you can definitely see a lot of inspirations that have carried through. Did pirates back in the day wear as much eyeliner as Johnny Depp did in his portrayal? (laughs) You know, it's actually funny is that sailors would put some sort of charcoal or some sort of dark paint around the eyes because it offered sun protection in their sunglasses. So it's not too inaccurate to see, you know, a really fabulous application of coal around the eyes. <laughs> huh. And and I want to backtrack on something that you said. I just wanted to make sure I heard this correctly. Did you say Blackbeard would put sparklers in his beard during battle? <laughs> yeah, candles and sparklers. Uh, and this was to make him look like he was literally coming out of the gates of hell. And the whole point was to terrify their victims into submission. Pirates really wanted, I mean, pirates were violent, yes. You know, they fought, they had their guns, they had swords, they injured, they killed, but they wanted to do it as fast as possible. Um, So that way there'd be the least amount of death and injury as possible. So they would try to frighten their victims into submission. And Blackbeard did this and it worked quite well. So I guess I'm curious then, Blackbeard, you said, was the anomaly here. But I'm curious, like for your average pirate, your run-of-the-mill pirate, what circumstances actually led them to get into piracy? How does one find themselves on a ship doing that? A few reasons. So first off, um, there were people who were forced into piracy. They were taken hostage and they were forced to essentially become a pirate to kind of replace any crew members that had been killed in battle. Um, A lot of people would claim after being arrested, I was forced into it. I didn't want to do it, but it was almost impossible to prove unless you had a witness. So that's one way. Most of the time, though, they were people who were perhaps trying to escape something. Maybe they were trying to escape a crime that they had committed. Um, They were trying to escape some sort of um, impressment, meaning kind of being pressed onto service for the Navy, meaning that they kind of were forced to do it and they didn't want to. A pirate ship offered them freedom from this. There were people who did work for merchants and naval ships, and the conditions could be quite poor really heavy discipline, maybe not as good food, unfair wages. Pirate ships were known to be a lot more egalitarian with a lot more equal pay. So this attracted people going into piracy. There's also the idea that pirates served themselves. They didn't serve another country. They didn't serve anyone else higher up. A lot of people were very into this, you know, kind of working for themselves in a way and not having to be tied to something higher than them. And also pirates generally did become quite wealthy. So a lot of people would join a pirate ship for a year or two. Um, If if they were lucky, they could retire with their their money and go back home if they were lucky. A lot of pirates who were captured were ultimately almost always executed for their crimes. And then, of course, there were the people who could not find any employment elsewhere, such as Africans, whether they were freed or enslaved, they could find a place onto a pirate ship because As long as they could sail, they would find a place. Now, whether or not they got as good a treatment as everyone else on the ship is debatable, but they did play a very important role on a pirate ship just like everybody else. So that actually leads me to a question because you said um, that they would try to do it for like one or two years before retiring, sailing off into the sunset. I'm going to do so many accidental pirate puns in this. I apologize in advance. Um, so so this portrayal of like a captain of a ship basically living on his ship for years and years and years at a time, that's actually not the general um, experience for your run-of-the-mill pirate? Um, 
captains and higher ranking officers, they were pretty much in it for life. And there were, don't get me wrong, there were a lot of people who were in piracy for life, but there was always the handful that would want to just do it for a short amount of time and go home. Um, That would be a smaller number than those who would choose to stay on the pirate ship because a lot of people who gravitated towards the sea really were connected with something there and they wouldn't necessarily want to leave. So, but uh, I would in terms of a number of how many would retire early versus not, that's hard to say. But, you know, a captain, they would be there for life. High-ranking officers, usually it would be kind of regular crew who would probably, if they were going to leave, they were the ones who were going to want to leave and go home. I guess, like, I'm more curious, like, how do you go back to regular life after trying to explain to people, yeah, I just moon, I just moonlighted for a couple of years as a pirate, and now I'm just, you know, kicking back, just enjoying the rest of my life. That seems just so hard to comprehend. Well, what's interesting is that pirates were regular people. Um, I think this is something a lot of people tend to forget. They're regular people like you and me. They had wives. They had children. Many of them actually did play pretty good roles within their communities. There were lots of areas, particularly in the mid-Atlantic, southern, and Caribbean colonies, where pirates were valued because there were a lot of trade restrictions that the British had put in place where colonists couldn't trade with anyone outside Britain or another British colony. This was an attempt to really cripple their European competitors' trade and economies, such as Spain and France and the Dutch. Pirates could bring in those goods. And so a lot of governors worked with them. A lot of people would finance pirates. And so a lot of these people, a lot of pirates, not all, but there would be the pirates who would come back and people kind of know, but sort of turn a blind eye. They go back home, they go to their family. Or there were pirates that would be quite ostracized from the rest of society. Um, and so they would probably, they and their families would have to kind of go live anonymously somewhere, most likely. But those who would return home, knowing things would be okay, would be going back to the areas where they wouldn't really be facing that sort of ostracism that those perhaps who might have been captured would have. So you've mentioned a couple times how pirates were, I guess, more appreciated in the mid-Atlantic and the southern colonies. And it, it got me thinking just now, um, how, how, if at all, instrumental were pirates to the American Revolution? Did they have any sort of impact at all against the British? Did they have a side or were they just trying to play both sides? Were they involved at all? That's a cool question. Um, and I've, it's a question I don't get asked as often as I would like, um, <laughs> because it's a really interesting one. So by, the, by the, the time of the American Revolution, in terms of organized bands of piracy, like we see in the 1710s and the 1720s, that no longer exists. Uh, piracy in terms of that organizational level has been eradicated because of other wars coming in, the strengthening of the Royal Navy. But you still did have kind of individuals Uh, who would come in and kind of act as pirates. Now, in terms of the American Revolution, what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of that war was fought on sea. It wasn't just fought on land. Um, And so because a lot was fought on sea, people were declaring piracy against each other quite a bit. The Continental Congress created their own laws against piracy um, and for privateering, which is legally sanctioned piracy, like you're acting as a pirate on behalf of a government attacking someone specific, you know, they said, we'll issue the letters of mark, which is their contracts to fight against the British. The British are saying you are not a country. The Continental Congress is not real. If, you, if they um, rob 
and try to kill us on the sea, then they will be arrested as pirates, no matter what. The colonies are saying the same thing. The colonists were saying the same things about the British. What's also interesting is that the Boston Tea Party, there were some who considered the members of the Boston Tea Party pirates, because, you know, in, in case there's anyone who listening who doesn't remember, you know, a group of um, American colonists disguised as dressed up as Native Americans went on to some British ships in the Boston Harbor and dumped all the tea into the water. There were officials who considered them to be pirates because in order to legally be called a pirate, you had to murder and rob on a body of water. Now, they were robbing a ship. They were taking British property, British tea, and throwing it into the harbor to destroy it. If they are robbing and trying to destroy British tea, they are therefore trying to destroy the British economy. If they're trying to destroy the British economy, they're trying to destroy the country. Therefore, they're trying to kill the country and its king. So... This is how the law would get really convoluted. So there was, there were um, instances of piracy during the American Revolution. It wouldn't have played as strong of a role as we think, but it was there a lot in the rhetoric, um, in terms of the language in newspapers, um, in order to kind of you know stir up feelings on both sides, essentially. I want to step back a little bit. Um, you had mentioned earlier about people who were brought in as prisoners and taken as basically slaves on pirate ships. Um, Africans would join pirate crews because they wouldn't have other work opportunities available to them. I'm curious in general, like what the diversity on a pirate ship looked like. Pirate ships were actually pretty diverse, more so than other merchant and naval ships. So in the Atlantic world, we're talking about what's known as the golden age of piracy, which is for the topic of right now, the 1710s and 1720s, which is when we have the most organized bands of piracy. And you see people like Blackbeard, uh, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, Jack Rackham, etc. During this time, a pirate ship was quite diverse. About 50% were... Um, white British American, British or British American colonists. The other 50% was made up of kind of a hodgepodge people from all kinds of different European countries, um, Portuguese, Spanish, French, um, sometimes even German, um, Scottish, Irish. You would also have uh, Africans on ships. You could sometimes there are even cases of um, East Asians on ships as well. That was a bit more rare, but um, you would have people kind of coming from all countries, really, which was helpful for pirates, making them pretty multilingual so they could kind of sail further and um, further about. But um, that this would be a lot more diverse than perhaps a naval or merchant ship where they would only be hiring, say, you know, British American colonists or anyone from the British Isles, essentially. So a pirate ship, half British, half kind of a mixture of everywhere else. The traditional pirate that we think of now is long gone, and the only real modern piracy that seems to pop up now and then is the Somali pirates. We hear a lot about the Somali pirates, and that's all we pretty much get in um, in modern society. And so I guess I'm a little bit interested, are there any similarities between like the modern-day Somali pirates and the pirates that I think you're more accustomed to studying, or are they pretty different entities in general? There are a decent amount of differences. So the pirates I'm talking about during this golden age, many of them had once been privateers during wars, such as the War of Spanish Succession, where again, they were paid by the government to fight against their enemies in war. And then once the war ended and peacetime resumed, 
privateers, you know, their contract expired, but they liked this way of life because they were paid in whatever items they could steal. And so they would just continue. Um, now, in Somalia, from what I know, it's a different situation, a lot of political unrest, um, which leads to a lot of economic problems, which has caused a lot of people to turn to piracy. I'm very much oversimplifying it. But they're going after, you know, these cruise liner ships, um, major cargo ships, because they know they're going to find a lot of valuable goods from wealthier people or wealthier nations. So they're after items, you know, big um, money, cash, electronics in particular, um, anything that could be of value to, in order to make to, to make money to bring back, I believe, to their governments. If I recall correctly, I believe that there were Somali pirates who were sponsored by the government to go specifically to act with piracy um, or act as pirates. It's a very complicated situation in terms of how is it dealt with because international maritime law gets so complicated, which is one of the reasons why it's been quite difficult to stamp out piracy today. Because, you know, who has jurisdiction over what area, when and where does that jurisdiction end? So it causes lots of complications. There were a little bit of similarities, I would say, with the pirates in the 1600s who were active in the Caribbean, because there was a load of political unrest happening then, a lot of wars between Britain and Spain. Um, in terms of who could be in charge of which plantation islands. And so pirates kind of took advantage of this because the reigning countries were distracted. But Somali pirates uh, is very is still very different socially, politically, and economically um, in terms of a lot of unrest, corruption, poverty, and those sorts of situations. So when we think about modern pirates, there's a bit of romanticization about modern pirates. They've definitely been highlighted in media and stuff like that as these larger than life figures, sometimes heroically. Um, and I guess I'm curious, in your opinion, if that is problematic. That's a really good question. Um, I always think there's a bit of a problem with romanticizing anything from the past because I think it makes people forget a lot of realities. So the issue with romanticizing pirates is that it kind of makes them seem like these really cool anti-establishment swashbucklers out for treasure and adventure. While this was true for many, many, many pirates, um, the reality was pirates were quite violent people um, for the most part. They, you know, robbing ships at will indiscriminately, um, you know, they were happy to kill uh, people in their way when they were trying to steal goods. There were pirates who were what we would probably call, you know, sociopathic, sadistic people, such as Charles Vane, who took enjoyment with torturing victims, or Ed Lowe, who took enjoyment in, you know, actually cutting body parts off victims and forcing them to eat them. Like wow. there were pirates who were really, really um, evil during that time. And there were also pirates who were just in it to make some money and go home and not really in for, you know, a lot of, you know, this romantic idea of adventure. So I think what happens is we forget what the realities are, that pirates, you know, they were essentially violent terrorists of the time. Um, at the same time, they were also kind of boring, regular Joes, like so many of us. So when you're romanticizing pirates, what happens is you are forgetting a lot of really important pieces of history. And that's why I think, I mean, it's fun to romanticize. You know, we enjoy the character Jack Sparrow. I love the character Jack Sparrow. I love the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I saw it three times in theaters 
when I was 18, you know? <laughs> so I'm from LA, grew up going to Disneyland. Pirates Caribbean has been my favorite ride since I was a little kid. So I guess I've always loved pirates in a way. <laughs> but what happens is when we romanticize, we forget the realities. And so I would love, and this is why I love kind of coming onto podcasts and, you know, kind of doing what I do is trying to bring the realities there um, out to the public. Um, and in my book, this is kind of what I write about specifically is about the romanticization of pirates and how that began. It's a bit one-sided in terms of the romantic side, but it's the purpose is to show how these ideas translated into the Jack Sparrows, um, the black sails of today. Um, so yes, yes. I, yeah, I guess I would say there's probably some problematic parts, but I'd hope that, you know, there could be more people could become interested in terms of researching what pirates were and kind of bringing that into their personal interests and portrayals of piracy. The show Black Sails actually did a really good job with that. I felt they showed the realities of piracy quite well. So in a, in a broad sense, is it fair to call pirates villains? Are they heroes, anti-heroes? Are they something completely different? It depends on your interpretation. You know, every historian has something different. The book I read that kind of got me into pirates as a master's student is called Villains of All Nations by Marcus Redeker, talking about how pirates were both very anti-establishment, but were also seen as terrorists. So I, I personally think that I kind of agree with that assessment. I think they're definitely very much both. They were people who were very anti-establishment, wanting to kind of live for themselves, but did act it, like terrorists in many, many way, you know, trying to literally instill terror into their victims and steal and rob at will. So there are historians, there are people who believe that, you know, pirates were these kind of these swashbucklers out to destroy the man, essentially. And then there were those who very, who very much believed no pirates were these really horrifically evil figures. I think it falls in between. Um, so that's kind of where I lie. I think it's, I think, like everything, there's a lot to the story. Um, and the thing is, pirates didn't keep their own records. So everything we get comes from outside ob observations. So we have to take a lot of that with, you know, with what, what it says, but also with a grain of salt, because everything has an intended audience. So this is why I kind of fall in the middle camp. I feel like it's almost a cop-out answer, but my answer is kind of yes and no. I think they were very anti-establishment, but I also do think, you know, that they were cruel. Many of them were very cruel, violent people out for their own game and to destroy other ships. So if we took these pirates from the golden age and we transported them into modern time, I guess in your expert opinion, what do you think are some vices that we traditionally think of pirates indulging in? What do you think they would get into today? Would they love the accessible gambling, the accessible drinking, the accessible pornography, all of that stuff? What would a modern pirate actually do? Well, pirates would probably definitely engage in the vices that they enjoyed on land because a lot of ships actually did have strict rules against gambling and drinking and that sort of thing because, you know, they didn't want to cause any disruptions on the ship. But once they're on land, they're going to taverns, they're spending their money on drinking, they're spending their money on, you know, the company of women. Um, so they would, if they live today, I think, I imagine pirates would probably be, um, you know, excited to know that there's a lot of bars and probably horrified at how many rules there are, you know, bars closing at a certain time, 
limits for drinking law, like laws for drinking, that sort of stuff. I feel like, you know, on the one hand, the abundance of choice and on the other hand, the kind of rules that come with it, I think would both amaze them, but also kind of horrify them in a little way. Um, culture shock. The idea of gambling, that's interesting because um, I'm not sure how many pirates did engage in gambling, but I'm sure there were many. You know, here in Los Angeles, we have, for lack of a better term, um, Indian casinos. Um, they're in abundance here. They would probably go, you know, going to Las Vegas, Atlantic City, that sort of stuff. I'm sure, you know, there would be many who'd be into that. Those who were into, you know, paying, you know, paying for sex, that I don't know very much about how it works here in the States. I do know that there, I, I believe, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I believe it is legal in Nevada or parts of Nevada. So that would be a place for them to go. Maybe just Las Vegas. <laughs> Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe Las Vegas. Um, in terms of that, I don't know. Pirates were like any other people. Some treated women very well. Some treated them very, very poorly. So that's something I don't know. I wouldn't really want to necessarily encounter very many pirates for some of these reasons. They might have the culture shock and think if they don't get their way, they can get in fights and kill. So it'd be kind of interesting to see. I don't know if I'd want to run into a pirate, to be honest. What do you think a pirate's social media presence would look like? I think they would probably have um, a lot of underground media because um, to become a pirate, you know, it was so risky and it was so anti-establishment in a way that to, if you wanted to kind of volunteer to join a pirate ship, it could be tricky. You had to know right people. You would have to hang out in the right places to find out this information. So I think they would probably have, you know, private groups or kind of underground groups. I would say they would probably be active on things like, you know, Twitter, um, which is what I use most. Like, what do the kids <laughs> use? Um, TikTok, Instagram, I think they would, but with coded messages, like a lot of people do use. So that's what I imagine. A lot of it would be very coded. A lot of it would be kind of underground. You'd have to know where to go. You know, those secret Reddit communities, uh, whatever else is underground. 4chan <laughs> or pirate 4chan. chan or whatever they would call it. Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah, I think that's how they would use it. And they probably would be pretty excited to know that they could get their, you know, messaging out pretty far and pretty quickly. I need to ask a direct and pointed question that I don't know the answer to, but this is really going to settle a long running debate. <laughs> Do you think it's out of the realm of possibility that a pirate transported into the modern age and given a Twitter account would indulge in sharing pornographic images? That's a good question. Um, this is the most important question you will answer on this podcast, just for the record. <laughs> this has a lot oh of implications. My, oh my God, what a question. <laughs> um, I don't I, I don't know. Um, the most important question, I'm under a lot of pressure here. Yeah, there is a lot of pressure. I think they probably would in terms of since so many of them were happy to engage in prostitution or what I mean is, you know, give their money to prostitution. Um, I think they could probably see it as maybe sort of advertising. Um, and they would probably be quite fascinated with the amount of pornography that is actually out there. Pornography is nothing new. You know, I, I've been to Pompeii in the ruins and there are 
pictures of naked people everywhere, people having sex everywhere, brothels, you know, advertisements of what you want based on the sex position that's drawn (laughs) on the walls. Like this stuff has been around since the beginning of human history. So actually now that I'm thinking about it, they would probably be stoked about the abundance of pornography out there and coming into the modern age and not knowing what the rules are with social media. I think they would probably be like, oh yes, let's share this with everyone until they got their accounts blocked. Amin El Hassan, if you ever hear this, you have been vindicated, my good man. Welcome <laughs> aboard the pirate ship. You are forgiven for all your transgressions. Um, Metal Arc Media, forgive this man. Pay him his money immediately. He's done nothing wrong in the eyes of Dr. Simon here. All right. Um, well, Dr. Simon, it has been so fun having you on here. Um if you would like, I would love to hear a little bit more about your book and how people can purchase it. And I would yeah. encourage all of our listeners to do so because you have been a great sport here on this podcast <laughs> today. Oh, this has been so fun. Like, thank you. I've had a lot of fun answering these questions and a lot of them are quite thought provoking as well. <laughs> so, and I really do enjoy that. Um, so my book, yes. So my book is called Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kid and How He Changed Piracy Forever. So the pi- a pirate named Captain Kid frames my book. He was someone who was captured in 1699 and executed in 1701. He was a privateer operating in the East Indies. And he, under pressure by his crew, because they weren't very successful, robs the wrong ship. And so he is declared as a pirate and goes on the run. He's convinced he's innocent, saying he did not know he was robbing the wrong ship. Um, he gets in a fight and kills his fellow crewmen on the ship, which therefore makes him guilty of murder because the definition of a pirate is murder and robbery on the high seas. So this starts a manhunt for him. And this is a really big deal because this is kind of the first time this manhunt is being live documented by the press as much as you can during this time period. So by the time he was arrested, people in England and people in the American colonies all knew who he was. And he's the one who kind of really exemplified a lot of the reasons pirates became romanticized, which I discuss. He engaged in drinking. He engaged in, you know, the anti-establishment cause, you know, he was Scottish, but worked for the English. So that alone caused friction. And so he was really anti-establishment in his own way. He was someone who was able to become quite wealthy. He was able to marry a socialite in New York named Sarah. So he was able to climb up in these social ranks. And of course, the most famous of all, he was the one rumored to have buried treasure, to have buried all the wealth and riches that he stole on an island called Gardner's Island off the coast of New York. In fact, he used this as a way to try to get off his charges he of piracy so he wouldn't be executed. So he said, I buried it on Gardner's Island. You can find it. Well, nothing was found. But this has now started the whole rumor that continues to this day that pirates buried treasure. I am of the camp that they did not. Pirates had no reason to. Also, pirate uh, treasure in the 16, 1700s just simply meant valuable. Pirates were after goods they could sell and make money. Wine, cloth, medicines, spices, that sort of thing. So my book examines kind of through all these examples how piracy became really romanticized, how the press built them up, how ideas of buried treasure kind of grew and what the realities were, what it was about hunting pirates and who pirates were, and also how pirates did go against the grain of the polite society, both socially 
and also culturally, including kind of seeing them as being anti-religious, going against all kinds of moral codes. And then I kind of finished the book off looking at how uh, pop culture evolved, starting with Treasure Island going up into the 20th century. So my book, Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd, and How We Change Piracy Forever is available pretty much any place books are sold, at the very least online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, um, any book selling website. You can get it on Audible. For those of you who prefer audiobooks, it's available readily on Audible for you. It's available in ebook for those of you who prefer a Kindle or something like that. It's available in all formats for you. So it's, it's everywhere, all formats. You reference pirates in New York, and because my brain is deeply, deeply broken, I cannot get the image of a New York-based pirate out of my head. Hey, I'm walking the plank over here! And that's just the worst joke to end this interview. Um, Dr. Simon, <laughs> thank you so, so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. And again, everyone, go check out her book. Go buy it. I'm going to do that uh, immediately after I get off this podcast because I am deeply fascinated by this Captain Kid character now. And yeah, this has just been so much fun. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. This has been loads of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What an awesome interview. Thank you once again to Dr. Simon for joining us. And thank you for joining us, not only for today's episode, but all 10 episodes if you've been with us from the start. It is crazy to see how far this show has gone and how much it has grown from episode one until now. And I think I'm finally starting to get my sea legs for this whole podcasting thing. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, remember to like, subscribe, rate, review if you haven't done already. And follow me on Twitter at Levitard underscore fan. Until next time, stay safe and stay well.